I brought a lot of readings with me tonight that I might um, um, share with you. I get rather excited about um, sharing things as kind of a exuberance, but in my exuberance in thinking about what I might want to share with you in terms of the different readings, I failed to write a Dharma talk. <laughs> but this, uh, but the talk that I want to give tonight is on a topic that I have, um, I have shared now for repeatedly in various forms for more than 30 years. And this topic, I never get tired of this topic. And in fact, it, it is the topic that in some ways uh, broke my heart. And I experienced tears of joy when I heard this the first time. And this is not any expectation I have that you will experience tears of joy. <laughs> but it was, it was really a, a moment in hearing the teachings on, uh, which are really the teachings, the first teachings that the Buddha offered to his ascetic friends who he'd been practicing with was a teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And... It was in a sutra called the um, Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. This is what set in motion the, the sharing of the teachings and the practice and the living transmission, heart to heart, mind to mind, uh, that, has, that allows us to be here sitting in this way. Without that first discourse, uh, we would not be here. It's amazing. On the other hand, not on the other hand, but in addition to that, without anything that has happened in our life, anything, any moment of experience, any smile that someone gave someone some other place, this world would not be the way it is right now. We are here because of so many causes and conditions that are so, this is not functioning well, that are not, maybe I should take this off, that are not personal, that have, but have influenced us in such a way that we have been uh, born into this world. And we've been born into this world through no fault of our own. It's not your fault. So my friend Wes says, you are not your fault. (laughs) But once you're born into this world, you, through no fault of your own, very innocently, you uh, scream and cry. (laughs) We don't like it. It's difficult to bear. And it's, um, and we get hungry and we get thirsty and we need to be held. We need to be loved. We need validation. We need healing. We need insight. We need freedom. We need so much just by virtue of the fact that you were born. And this condition that we find ourselves in is one that, that leaves us often in a state of, um, because we're in the habit of need, in a state of continually thinking that we need something to make us happy. This state of needing something to make us happy, which you don't have right in this moment, And notice whether you're unhappy after your last need has passed and before the next one comes. But as long as we're in that pattern of needing something to be happy, in its absence, the absence of what I want to happen, I'm kind of miserable. There's a, it, as I was saying this, I was thinking of a, 
of a poem from, I think it's Rumi, where, and you have to take it tongue in cheek a little bit. He says, failure is the key to the queendom or kingdom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. So one of my teachers said that the purpose of even meditation is to exhaust our mind. Tire us out from that constant, constant search, constant obsession with what's next. Have any of you noticed that over the course of the day? Waiting for the bell to ring. Any of you wait for the bell to ring today? (laughs) Waiting for the meal. Waiting for the Dharma talk. Wanting relief. Wanting quiet. Wanting something that's not actually happening. So this is a This is the state of mind we call craving or wanting, the desire for sense pleasures that that when unrecognized, torments us. When it goes unnoticed, we're literally carried along by a hypnotic trance that says, unless that bell rings, I will never be happy. The bell becomes the secret to happiness. The meal becomes the secret to relief. The end of the day, and of course the way it works in our daily life, it's the weekend holds that promise of happiness and relief. But all the while, while we're in that state of waiting and wanting, it's sometimes called the first of the five hindrances, uh, we are literally hypnotically inducing a sense of suspended happiness. We're saying, I can't be happy now. I can't find relief now. And this actually obscures what the, the Buddha realized, that happiness, freedom, sense of not needing anything, is your primordial nature. Peace, relief, is your nature. It is nearer than your breath, this quality or this this reality of silence, of relief, of enough, completeness. It's sometimes called tata or suchness. Just the isness of things. The Buddha was called Tathagata, the one who knows suchness. One who knows things just the way they are, is aware and awake. Now when the Buddha realized that what he had been longing for, and he was so filled with desire, so anybody who thinks that somehow a, a Buddha is somebody who doesn't have desires, It's just that his desire was for something that no other short-term desire could fulfill. It was the desire for freedom. And all his searching led him to uh, tired his mind, tired that that endless search until his heart and his mind opened. It It opened through insight and wisdom. When he saw clearly, it was through through ignorance or not seeing clearly, through confused perception that he stayed, he stayed uh, caught up in, in searching for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it was through clear seeing, it was through clear perception that his, his heart opened. And he realized that his own nature, the nature of the very heart and mind through which he was perceiving was the Buddha, was awake, was free, was unconditioned, unborn. And that 
It's the same for you. Your deepest nature, as you sit here, is free. And you can recognize it as the very nature of the mind that's noticing. And you don't even need to travel an inch, as Will was referring to. It's a half breath, not even a half breath. It's whatever it is that's known in that very instant. Literally, in the moment of knowing, that suffering ends. The suffering depends on the, on the past and the story. So why didn't he just say, why didn't he just shout it from the hilltops? Say, hey, look. Turn the other way, look. Look within the nature of your own mind. Why didn't he just say, you're free already? That's not what he did. He realized that, that what, he was, what he had realized or recognized was, was too, um, too close for most people to see. Except then he realized that there were those with a little dust on their eyes. And if, it, if pointed in that way, they, they, could, they could wake up. But he saw that it was too close, that it was, it was actually way too big, too vast. This, the nature of our hearts are just boundless, free. And we couldn't accommodate the vastness of it. And it was, he saw that it was, and this is a teaching from the Tibetan tradition, he saw that it was too wonderful. We couldn't accommodate the joy. At least not all at once. Even the joy would be too painful. And finally, it was too easy. That uh, It's too easy to just rest in the nature of your own mind. He saw that people were, uh, were wandering around so sincerely, so innocently, as all beings do, searching for happiness and well-being. But actually, in the medicine that, they, that we are taking, we've been taking, we are actually, we have been blocking our way, blocking the path to real, to real joy. Been overlooking this ever-present capacity that we have to be free, to be awake. That's why it's sometimes called an open secret. And he noticed that, that human beings were, were caught up in, as he was, and he recognized this in himself, he saw that Human beings are caught up in what he called the, the three prides. Really bound up in the pride in youth and staying young. And I, can, and I turned 60 last year. It's, and I can really notice that the pride in youth, I'm, I'm going down kicking and screaming. It's kind of embedded in the psyche, not, not to want to get old. And in spite of all the logical, <laughs> all the evidence <laughs> that it's inevitable, there's this little, this identity with, with youth. Any of you relate to this? So he saw that people were really bound up in the pride in youth. Called them the three prides. And bound up in the pride in health. Not willing to see that our health is fragile. That every being who is born, I heard this one quote once that I loved, it's the very definition of birth is the leading cause of death. <laughs> but I changed it, the, 
definition of birth is the leading cause of aging, of sickness, of old age, and dying, and death. That's the definition of being born. But yet, the pride in health says, I don't want to. And of course, we love ourselves, so we don't want to, to become ill. And, but it ignores uh, one of the fruits of being born, one of the results of, of being here. If you don't have this, you're not one of us. This is, comes with the territory. And last but not least, he said people were bound up in the pride in life, clinging to existence itself, and completely um, ignorant, blind to the obvious and ever-present fact that, that we will die. And this has been a truth, not just in modern culture where we dress up our corpses and, and we basically hide anyone that's really old in a way in, in uh, nursing homes and just segregate, in a sense. The, the, the world is for the, the young and the, the elders in this culture just are not put in that preeminent place of honoring and respect just a little bit allowed to kind of fade away into the, into the background. But this pride in life has been going on since the time of the Buddha. And before, they, in the Hindu tradition, in the, in the Mahayana, the story of Arjuna having this conversation, somebody who says, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And the person says, uh, or Arjuna says, the most wondrous thing in this world is that people are dying around us every day. Millions. And in fact, for us, it's all seven billion of us will be replaced in a hundred years. And uh, billions are dying around us every day, but somehow we don't think it'll happen to us. And that, that was true then, and the same is true now. So the way the Buddha... Um, saw this. He saw this with awareness. He saw this through the through the what we call the six sense doors. He experienced this reality of sickness, of old age and death, and the ignorance of it through the very senses through which we're perceiving, the consciousness through which we're perceiving. And he said that you do not need to look beyond this very body. And we talked about the body today. We brought the body into awareness. If you did nothing but attend to the body with its perceptions and its sense experience, you would know the entire world. As he put it, he said, through this fathom-long body, and I guess that's something like six feet or five feet or whatever, through this fathom-long body with its perceptions and inner sense lies the world. Without this body, we, we don't know the world. Through this fathom-long body lies the world. And once we notice the world, then we see what's true about the world. And we see this through our senses. It says, through this fathom-long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, that which keeps it spinning. We see that through our senses. Through this fathom-long body lies this world, lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world. Now, when he says the end of the world, he doesn't mean doomsday. He means the end of the world that our mind projects. The cessation of this profound drama of as Will spoke about last night, of me. I think of it as the one who comes from the past, who moves through the present on, its, on his or her way to the future. It's really the, the end of the imagined me that is spawned in this, in this six-door perception called the mind. When all that ends, what do we experience? 
What do you experience when the world of your imagination ends right now? What is here always? Anybody want to say? You, you started to say something, Elizabeth. Awareness. Awareness. What else? Reality. Reality. And we don't need these words, do we? <laughs> it's fun, though, to talk about it. <laughs> I'm always amazed how different... Um, the experience is when the world ends. The, different, my, the difference between my experience now than the world that I live in in my thoughts. Couldn't be more different. This is not to say, or, you know, as we've been talking, it's not about getting rid of those thoughts. It's about being able to see them. Notice them. See them as another sense experience. And in the seeing of it, we see that they, they end. They all end. Just in the macro way, our bodies end. Our life, as we experience it through the senses, end. Everything is marked by that, by changing conditions. So the Buddha, through his senses, through his awareness, thank you for saying awareness, through awareness, he discovered the things he later taught. He did not discover the things he later taught through reading a book. That would be like reading the menu and never tasting the food. He discovered it through, through the senses, through his own inquiry. And the heart of his encouragement and a chant that's done every day, it goes in Pali, I shared it with one of the groups, Ehi Paseko Opanayeko Pachatan Weditapu Winyuhiti, for those who are interested to come and see for themselves. I found that very inspiring when I came to the teachings. I wasn't asked to become a Buddhist, to adopt any views, any belief system, I was asked to, to work on my habits, purify my actions so that I could actually see more clearly and not be reverberating from the effects of all the lies I've told or the people I've exploited or all, you know, whatever it is that, that may, makes us unable to see clearly. But then to use the power of this, the intelligence, the, the love that flows through this uh, through this consciousness to see for myself what's true. And so this is, no, this is no different than it was for the Buddha at the time of the Buddha. In fact, he abandoned everything he learned from, in order to be able to see in a fresh way, childlike in a way. And in his innocent searching, with his senses, he, having been like all of us, oblivious to the three prides and to the facts of sickness, old age, and death, he started wandering around and then it, it struck him. He saw somebody who was similar in age, quite ill, really teetering on, on death. And then he saw an extremely old person and it, he, he took it in with an unvarnished view. And then he saw a corpse. Now these things seem very obvious. But until we actually see them, take them in, let them, as Hafez says, cut more deep, let them ferment and season us, we pretty much wander, you know, do whatever we can to distract ourselves from it. But in this, in this moment, he could not hide. It pierced his heart to see these what are called heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, and death, because they, they wake us up to our, um, 
or nature. And it, it shook him to the point where he felt this, um, this kind of dismay. This, and he felt the, dis, the futility of trying to find something that is lasting in the world of change, in the world of, of the senses. And he realized, I have been, my whole life, I've been depending on my, for my happiness, I've been depending on, and he had everything. You know, he was, lived in a world of enormous sense pleasure. He was wealthy, privileged, not unlike people in general in the Western world, relative to places in the world where they're, you know, are we, and, you know, of course, right in our midst, people live who don't have enough to eat, etc. But he lived relative to others, very privileged, had every possible sense pleasure. But yet he wasn't, he wasn't very, he could have everything and he wasn't satisfied. And he knew it. And he saw, I've been depending on this for my happiness and it's just made me more unsatisfied. And I've been chasing, chasing things that change and I, I'm changing, aging. Where's the relief in that? Where is, where is peace to be found in, in all of those unreliable and changing conditions? I've been having a lot of pleasure in my life, but I'm not happy. In fact, I realize that everything I've been doing to make me happy has actually made me less happy. Because each time I've responded to one of those little feeling tones of pleasant by, um, which is the lawful result of, of having a pleasant experience, it's followed by a little charge that says, I like this. And, it, and each time I, I felt that charge of I like this, and I didn't notice that so well, that was followed by I want this. I want more of this. And that little charge of I like, I want more, when unnoticed, it's followed by a whole stream of strategizing. How am I going to pursue that next experience, that next kind of pleasure? Do do you relate to any of this? (laughs) And before you know it, this simple desire to satisfy some kind of hunger, to soothe the heart, to make me, myself happy, I've actually conditioned the habit of, um, of needing to wait to be happy, needing to get something to be happy. And what have we missed in that process? A real source, a real source of, of peace and relief. So he began to see that there was something unreliable, something fundamentally unsatisfactory about our notions of what will bring us relief in this world. And yet there was no one around to mostly, because he was was living at the pinnacle of what human beings could have in terms of pleasure, not um, not much information about where you could find real happiness. But fortunately, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger, which was a, a form of, a, of a, um, a renunciate, a mendicant. Somebody who looked very serene, and he, he began to see that, it was a, it was ha- that this relief and happiness was an inside job. It's not about acquisition. Not about deletion or getting rid of. It's about staying right where we are for once and seeing what's actually here. And at first, as you found in these first few days, the the residue of having run so fast from silence is that we're beat up, we're exhausted. Our bodies are so tense, our minds so from that 
from that tight fist of, of wanting more, that pressure that builds, that just, it just um, triggers or it spawns a whole realm of discursive thinking. And it's, in some ways, it's just the secondhand version of this underlying uh, desire that's just moving us along. This is universal, it's not just you. And all of us have our own strategies to deal with the, with the facts of sickness and old age and death. But this, what the Buddha called dukkha, the first noble truth life has within it, things that are hard to bear, things that are stressful, like sickness, old age, and death, that it's not, it doesn't privilege anyone. It, 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 everyone has it. Um, and his first teaching was, this is a fact of life, and if you truly want to be free, you need to open to this fact of life because you can see what's happened to your mind and body by trying to run from it. It's made us really, really tight. So we, so the first teaching that the Buddha offered after his awakening was, um, there is in this world things that are hard. Three basic things, three kinds of, of what he called dukkha. Dukkha is sometimes loosely translated as suffering, but it's, it's much more nuanced than that. And it more like uh, stress, uh, dissatisfaction, dis-ease, sometimes described as a wheel out of round. It has within it things that are just not quite right. There's a fundamental um, squeakiness to our lives, not just you. As Thich Nhat Hanh said, and we may even title this talk, no mud, no lotus. So his, his recommendation is to deal with his prescription that life has all these things that are so hard to bear. He said, open to it, welcome it, stop running. And if you want to be free, you have to be able to say, I saw dukkha as dukkha. I saw it just the way it is. Started to say before that there are three kinds of dukkha that we can open to and welcome. First one is sometimes called dukkha dukkha. That's the garden variety. Sickness, old age, death, not getting what you want, Everybody. Not wanting what you get. Everybody. Being separated from all that you hold near and dear. That's dukkha dukkha. And that's very tied into the second kind of dukkha, sometimes called anicca dukkha. Anicca dukkha means, uh, anicca means impermanence and change. Impermanence. That everything that arises passes. And as things pass, there's a, a little sense of loss. There's a feeling of unsatisfactoriness. It's not just you. Everyone. And then the last kind of dukkha is called sankara or sankara dukkha. Sankara dukkha is the, sankara means um, conditions. That conditions, the conditions of our life keep rolling along, unbidden. That every day, through, <laughs> without any, without help, being able to help it, we're, we wake up, at least as long as we're alive. We have to wash, we have to clean, we have to do everything that it takes to live a life. And these conditions just keep presenting themselves. And sights and sounds and smells and tastes and to-do lists and everything, it just keeps coming. And that there is 
from a certain perspective, a certain understanding, that's hard to bear. The Jackson Brown, you know, you get up and do it again, or the Groundhog Day element of life just keeps going around. So this is what we need to open to. That it doesn't mean life is all suffering, but this element is part of life. And if we don't open to it, we deprive ourselves a sense of being able to experience the joy of sitting in the middle of it. That right in the midst of it, as Camus said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. We cannot know that unless we stop running from silence. Let our thoughts, our words, just stop for a little bit. Stop looking back. Stop looking ahead. And just open to our condition. And it doesn't make our condition as human beings any different than the way it is, but it, it eases, as Will's been speaking about, it eases or it changes our relationship to what's happening. The conditions are conditions, but the suffering about them is, the mental suffering is completely optional. It has to do with how it is that I meet things just the way they are, just the way they have come to be. And this is what we've been practicing moment by moment. It's a word in Pali, yata bhuta, things as they are. And that's, we, we want to move our life and our practice to being in harmony with things as they are. So even if you're feeling really exhausted right now, or feeling impatient, or wanting me to finish already, or wanting (laughs) whatever it is, just let that be the way it is for a moment. Notice how that feels in your body, whatever it is, if there's some disease. Just for one moment in the span of your retreat, don't do anything about anything. Just let it be. Be aware. So after the Buddha's awakening, just as an encouragement, when he met with lay people like um, like us, he recommended five daily reflections, and I'll just share just a few of them that are just useful to have in our minds, so that we so that we are can wake ourselves up in the middle of our daily life as well. And the daily reflections, and you can use them while you're on retreat too. Because many people come on retreat, you come face to face with our fragility, with our vulnerability. And some people have very serious physical illnesses or have loved ones with very serious physical illnesses right now or dying or have had losses. And this is a reminder that this is, um, this is normal. This is not an aberration. It's not something wrong. And at least we can, um, we can prevent to some degree what's called the second arrow. There's all the maladies that show up in our lives. That's one thing. But then the second arrow is, why me? Or it shouldn't be happening. There's a, a story from, I don't know where, but it was a story of a farmer who went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. How he, 
And same with his children. He loved them, but they weren't quite turning out the way he wanted. And when he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, can't help you. (laughs) And he says, what do you mean? You're supposed to be a great teacher. And the Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, well, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. Now what's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is we don't think we should have any problems. So if I'm applying that when something difficult arises in my life, that's an extra, that's an extra arrow, that's a jab. And just compounds the discomfort that's already present. From the Buddha, loss and gain, disrepute and fame, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, These things are transient in human life, inconstant and bound to change. The mindful wise one discerns them well, observant of their alterations. Pleasant things do not stir his mind, and those unpleasant do not annoy him. All likes and dislikes are dispelled by him, eliminated, abolished, aware now of the stainless, griefless state He fully knows having gone beyond. Now that stainless, griefless state is each moment, each moment where awareness hits things just as they are. You think these simple moments of mindfulness, you may not think that they have such an enormous transformative power, but they do. Each one of those moments of mindfulness is a moment without, without an extra arrow. Because the, the Buddha didn't stop with the fact that we have difficulties in our lives. He said what turns those difficulties into mental suffering is our constant desire for things to be other than the way they are that expresses itself in that constant state of, of, uh, of wanting pleasure, the constant state of wanting to continue to live, wanting to become someone, constantly toppling forward into the imagined future, running from the imagined past, passing through the present. That this state of desire, this state of toppling, this state of of movement from the way things are adds to the burden of life and and brings about a, a sense of mental distress. And it expresses itself both as desire but also the flip side of aversion. As Will spoke about, it all starts with those little feeling tones. It starts with something we experience as unpleasant quickly followed by aversion or not liking, followed by aversion. And then that compounds into to ill will, to fear, to hatred, to revenge fantasies, to to whatever it is. And before you know it, we have compounded the basic distress into into, uh, mental suffering. Does that describe us? (laughs) I think it does. I I love hearing that. Well, the Buddha, that was his his, uh, diagnosis of of what causes, what turns our basic stresses into mental suffering. There was also a prescription, just as the prescription for dealing with the fact of difficulties is to open to them. Said so the the prescription for dealing with the this chronic tendency to want things to be different than the way they are. The prescription for that is to 
is to let go. Is to open our fist. And as one of our teachers said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. The world won't come to an end. The struggles with the world will come to an end. That's why Ajahn Sumedha, one of our teachers, says, uh, you can simplify your practice down to two words. Let go. It says, rather than try to develop this practice and go into that and learn this and learn that and learn the Majamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana and, and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism instead of becoming the great Buddha of the age, just let go. He says, I did nothing but that for about two years. Every time I tried to figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go until the desire would fade out. He says, uh, I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. He says, there's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> he says, keep this letting go like a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. Let go. Now that doesn't really mean you do something with things. Let go really means, as we've been saying, let it be. Let be. Way of letting go is to see, letting go comes naturally when you see clearly, as, as Jennifer Wellwood says in her poem called Dakini Speaks. She says, friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not act so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us. And she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. To me, this is a a roar of let go. Let it be, just as is. So the Buddha didn't stop with the first noble truth that there is stress and things that are difficult to bear in life, the prescription of opening to it with the cause of, of our mental stress is our craving things to be different uh, than the way they are and the prescription of letting go. He then expounded on the good news, the very good news, that there is an end to this mental stress, to the mental suffering. There is the capacity within our hearts to be free. And he and he Describe that as the, that was the um, diagnosis. Put everything in medical terms. He was considered the great physician. 
And he also gave a, a prescription. And for the prescription for the end of this mental stress, mental reactivity, the tight fist of grasping is to, um, to realize it, to realize that in this very life, in this very moment. He always said to be seen here and now. So you may hear this talk and say, wow, the Four Noble Truths. I am going to walk the path of the Four Noble Truths. And someday, in the long distant future, I'm going to realize the Third Noble Truth. And I'm going to walk the Eightfold Path. And what you've done in that moment is you've just made up a story about an imagined person walking a path. And and you've forgotten that we're always here. And that there is no path to awakening. The path surrounds you in every instant. Within this fathom-long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world. Lies the path to the end of the world. So we do not need to lift out of this moment to navigate this path. I'll just give you a simple example from my daily life. On my way here on Tuesday night, sorry I can't think of an example today, there were many on the retreat, but I was on my way here on Tuesday night and I stopped by what, a place called Mega Gym in San Rafael. Those of you who are mothers to children may have taken your kids there for gymnastics. So I pulled into the Mega Gym parking lot pulled up to the stop, you know, each parking place has one of those little stops, pulled up till my tires hit the stop, went and saw my daughter do gymnastics, got in my car, pulled back, and my bumper caught on the, on the little stopper and pulled my bumper right off. <laughs> and I noticed immediately unpleasant Vedana, unpleasant <laughs> This is dukkha. This is the first noble truth. There are in life things that are hard to bear. It was hard to bear. I was late for being here. I didn't want to have to deal with a bumper that was hanging because it was screwed in another spot. And so had I driven away, it would have been, the bumper would have been flopping around. And, and I realized at that time that I was getting getting reactive to this, that, uh, that I had already, within really an instant, I have moved from the, the basic fact of dukkha, the first noble truth, I'd moved right on to the second noble truth. I want this to be different than the way they are, the, the way it is. And I could tell that I was getting really incensed. And that you can see that movement from that simple sense experience to this compounding reaction and, and the aversion or ill will, it's, the Buddha described it as frustrated desire. One of the reasons we get angry, and you could just see it, that uh, the second noble truth was in full bloom and that I was having mental suffering now. And fortunately, I, um, because of this habit of being simply aware, awareness sprang up to know the object, to know the experience. And it was, you know, if we, if we have the, if we're willing, the difficult feelings are, we can wonderfully put them to good use. They wake us up. And if you really light on something that's difficult, your mind won't move. It'll just rivet your attention. And I was riveted by the, the heat I started to perspire and I started to feel this kind of flushing. And as I experienced that, as I let it be, let it fill awareness, because awareness is by its nature non-interfering. Awareness has no agenda. It just wants to see what's there. And as I experienced that, it faded away. And I know Will told his own story last night. I don't remember the details. But in that fading away and the cessation 
of that distress, I realized the third noble truth in real time. There is an end to dukkha. And then the fourth noble truth that the Buddha described, that there is a path. There is a path that each of us creates in our own life that goes nowhere. Remember the Buddha, the famous poem from the Japanese monk, poet, Ryokan, he says, Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So he said there's a path that we can cultivate, that we can, that we can um, navigate in our, in our own life, in our own body, that leads to this happiness and well-being. And the, the prescription is this must be cultivated. And it has three basic parts, has eight, eight limbs, but three basic parts. And the basic parts are uh, the purification of our actions, which is the happiness that comes from non-harming, allowing us to experience what's called the bliss of blamelessness. There's the happiness that comes through having a unified mind, a well-composed and collected attention, a mind that's well-trained, a mind that is, uh, is growing in the what's called wise effort to, to cultivate wholesome states of mind and wholesome habits, to maintain them, to, to abandon the, the actions of, of our uh, body and our speech, of our mind that cause suffering, to abandon those, to not do the things that cause us more suffering. That's the the purification of our, of, of our mind. So purification of action, purification of mind. And it culminates with, with purification of view, the cultivation of wise understanding and wise intention, wise thought. And wise understanding is understanding, the heart of that is understanding the Four Noble Truths. So in that moment where there was a cessation of where there was the recognition that this is dukkha, this experience of the bumper falling off, there was the cause of of mental dukkha, the compounding of it, it's the second noble truth, there was a cessation of it. By virtue of having noticed that whole process, I was also fulfilling the fourth noble truth, I was cultivating the path. Because the navigator, the central force of that path of awakening is mindful attention. That's what purifies all the other aspects. Purifies the actions, purifies the mind, purifies our view. So that we can have the, in this very life, uh, the happiness of awakening, the joy of awakening. And it doesn't happen in time. It happens here and now. So may all beings uh, realize the Four Noble Truths, Dukkha, the cause of Dukkha, the end of Dukkha, and the path leading to end of the Dukkha, here and now. So let's just sit.
from the Dalai Lama. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man. Because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. <laughs> May all beings live. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.